Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. And as usual, this is a Tuesday episode. So with us is our friend and producer, Hugo Lindgren. But not as usual, we're going to try a new format today. So Hugo and I are going to have a conversation about a couple of you know timely topics. But then we're going to pivot to an interview with Elizabeth Wilkins. Elizabeth uh, is just fantastic, and she runs public policy um, for the Federal Trade Commission. And, you know, we talk about antitrust issues quite a bit on this podcast, and she was willing to come on. Uh, we thought maybe we'd try combining uh, an interview with a conversation. So that's what we're going to do today. Hugo, how's it going? It's going well. Bradley, so I want to start the discussion. Um, you're in New Orleans this week. Um, mm-hmm. First of all, what are you doing there? Uh, Abby was looking at Tulane. Okay. Uh, so we went to tour Tulane, and then... We've just been eating. Uh, each of the kids brought a friend, and we have just paraded around. Like the only thing you really do in New Orleans is walk around and eat and right. drink. Although I don't drink anymore, so that it's just eating. Um, what's something you're doing on this trip that you've never done before when you visited New Orleans? Um, well, uh, a couple of restaurants that I haven't been to before, including last night I went to Dookie Chase, which is like a New Orleans legendary restaurant that I had never been to, and it was um, phenomenal. I had like fried catfish shrimp oysters everything you can imagine it was fucking great um so a couple of new restaurants um the hotel i'm staying in was just built so i guess that's new um yeah and then you know i hadn't been to the Tulane campus before but i I really love this city i've been here 15 times or so the course of my life and i don't think i could ever live here because i would become i'd probably start drinking again and then become an alcoholic within three weeks and even if not i would like gain 200 pounds and die of diabetes um but but visiting here once a year twice a year uh, i have been working out at the gym in the hotel but nonetheless my sugar intake has been uh, off the charts but if i figure new orleans only is okay other than eating, is there something you always enjoy doing when you're there? Or I mean, just- it's really walking around the Garden District. It's walking around the French Quarter. It's seeing all the different people there who are all kind of enjoying the same thing. Um, yeah, there's you know there's some museums. I'm not a big history buff, but the World War II Museum is considered to be outstanding. Um, like we're going to go to the New Orleans Museum of Art today because I, I am an art buff, um, and Abby likes that too. Uh, also interesting is the Miss Universe pageant was held here last night, um, and our hotel happens to be like right down the block from the convention center. So we were kind of ground zero in the lobby for Miss Universe. I didn't see any of the contestants, but I saw like people apparently just to attend wear like super formal, like there are all these people in tuxedos and gowns. I assume they were all going to like a wedding or something. And it turns out they were all going to Miss Universe. Wait, this is this is the thing Trump did, right? Apparently, he no, they they threw him out or bought him out or something. Yeah, he <laughs> according to the Uber driver that I was talking to about it, Trump, is no, all the Trump is no longer affiliated with it. Um, okay. you know, it's funny. We went on StubHub yesterday to see if you can get tickets, just out of kind of curiosity. Nothing. I mean, totally impossible. Yeah. Um, um, okay, so one other quick question on New Orleans because I'm curious. Um, in all the time you've been since you've been going there, is the city getting better or worse, or how would you characterize? So you know they were complaining. Everyone was complaining about crime. Crime here has gotten much, much worse. And I was kind of drawing the parallels to New York, and you know whether you're in Chicago or LA or San Francisco, lots of places. I think everyone has effectively the same complaints. And look, while each city is idiosyncratic, and New Orleans is sort of particularly idiosyncratic, I, I think we're just there's a pendulum, right? So let's just take New York because it's an easier example for us and for our listeners. So you grew up in Manhattan. So crime in the 70s and really through through the 80s and early 90s was really high, right? It was a long period of sustained high crime, violence, 
quality of life problems. Eventually, and I don't know what, how, what kind of voters your parents were, but the typical, you know, white Democrat uh, voter got so fed up with it that in 1995, they elected Rudy Giuliani. Um, Giuliani, I'm sorry, 1993. Um, Giuliani then took pretty extreme measures, but he cleaned up the city. Crime plummeted. He was overwhelmingly reelected in 1997. And then the, it stayed where it was because of 9-11. Mike got elected and basically had the same crime policies and approach as Giuliani. So over this you know, effectively 20-year period, the city was really safe and quality of life was high. And then, you know, when times are bad, the only thing that voters think about is safety, right? And like, I hate this shithole and there are people pooping on my block and my kid got mugged and there are tents everywhere. And, you know, I just, I want that to go away. Then when you have a sustained period where quality of life is high and the city is safe, people start to forget what it was like, or you have new voters who never really saw what it was like. And then they say, well, oh, you know, why don't we trend towards social justice? Why don't we eliminate uh, bail? Why don't we talk about defunding the police? Why don't we let district attorneys who fundamentally believe that most criminals are victims of institutional discrimination as opposed to criminals? And then it swings the other way, right? And all of a sudden, guess what happens when you stop policing? Crime goes up, right? And so I think nationally, crime went way down in the 90s, you know, stayed down through the 2000, the aughts, I guess that's called or the 2000, 2010 period, and then, you know, started to spike back up because as people took safety for granted, they became more progressive in their politics. They embraced social justice. The social justice warriors did exactly what they said they were going to do, right, which is we are going to get rid of all as much policing structure as we can. And they did that. And guess what? The cities are wildly more dangerous as a result. Um, Kathy Hochul, who's the governor of New York, had her state of the state uh, a couple of days ago, and she did call for some new reforms to the bail laws in New York to give judges a little more discretion over not releasing people who are violent. Uh, that may or may not pass in Albany. But if you think about it, we're just sort of like at the midpoint or a little further towards the pendulum shift back to public safety. So we saw Eric Adams elected mayor of New York City. Um, people, crime was became the dominant issue in the election. Eric had been a cop for 22 years. Made sense. Uh, we saw in a couple of Long Island congressional districts, uh, Republican candidates, I guess now most notably George Santos, um, <laughs> you know, because of the perception of crime driven in large part by the New York Post. And I don't know that crime in, you know, Nassau and Suffolk County was necessarily as high as it, it feels or as, as bad as it feels. Well, I think there was just some news this week about Nassau County crime was up like some incredible amount. I mean, I think it's from very, very low levels. Overall. Yeah, but still, right. But people feel unsafe, right? Public safety is both perception and reality. So you had a, a couple of seats flip and Republican members won or held on to seats on Long Island, which, by the way, was probably the, di the difference in the balance of power in the House, no less. Um, and so you're starting to see signs, right? You see Adams win. You see voters who will probably normally support Democratic congressional candidates because of their concerns about crime or support the Republicans instead. You see Hochul take some baby steps towards calling for uh, tougher laws. And then look, as things continue to get worse and people feel more and more unsafe and they're more and more fed up with it, um, first, you'll have Democratic primary voters consistently voting for the centrist candidate as opposed to the progressive candidate. Um, and then those same voters will start voting for the Republican candidate, even in New York City, who will then be elected uh, on a mandate to clean the city up and we will swing all the way back. And so I, I just kind of think that we're sort of constantly stuck
um, between these two poles. And uh, so in New Orleans, though, do you see any evidence of crime or is it just what people say? I mean, there's no, is it, is it palpable? I haven't seen anyone like getting mugged or anything. Um, but I, I will say, so Abby and her friend, you know, they're 16 and, and I can't not let them walk around New Orleans by themselves. But I've been pretty clear with them of like, you can walk around the Garden District, you can walk around the French Quarter, anywhere where you are where you don't feel comfortable at all, just call an Uber, right, and get out of there, come back to the hotel. Um, so at the very least, the way I am sort of parenting is a little a little different. And, you know, because of all the Uber drivers talking about it, even, you know, two nights ago, whenever some night we were walking home from the French Quarter and it was dark and I was like, shit, you know, I'm actually like slightly anxious, you know, because it was packed. And then we hit some weird streets to get to our hotel that were kind of empty. I was like, fuck, you know, maybe this is a bad idea. So anyway, but look, it is a wonderful city. It is a plague city, you know, both in terms of the the weather and and crime and everything else. But it is still one of my favorite places in the world. Uh, Okay, so you have a uh, uh, an Elvis Presley story you mentioned. So but I want to ask you Priscilla. Priscilla. Yeah. Oh, Priscilla Presley, sorry. Okay. But Lisa Marie Presley died this week. 50 oh, Lisa Marie. I'm sorry. I have a Lisa Marie story. Yeah. Pre- Pre- That's what Priscilla I have. Is, is her mom. Um, Lisa Marie Presley, she's 54 years old. So before you tell me your story, I just want to ask you like to, to comment on this. So she's the only child of Elvis Presley, um, which if you think about it, is pretty it's amazing. Like how now that guy was he right. He'd have 30, he like Will Chamberlain. He, looks like 63 children. Yeah. Like, like, like how did Elvis Presley only have one child? What's your theory? Maybe he was impotent, and then some. Maybe, maybe Lisa Marie's not even his. Well, she definitely looks like she was. <laughs> uh, that's true. Um, I don't know because it wasn't like birth control was as prevalent in the 1950s oh. as it is today. So I don't know. I mean, or maybe the reality is his image of being this ladies' man wasn't the reality, right? And maybe he really wasn't, and as a result, there just weren't nearly as many opportunities for fertilization as as we might think. Well, no, I mean, I think that must be the answer, actually. But it, like, it, they're really as many as abortions as he might have paid for. Um, it it seems likely that if you were pregnant with Elvis's baby, you were going to do whatever you could to keep it. Yeah, and I feel like, I mean, look, I'm not an Elvis scholar by any means, so maybe it's known that he paid for a bunch of abortions. But I feel like, you know, given how controversial abortion it was illegal back then. If if he was doing it left and right, someone would have said something. It would have come out, right? Okay, what's your what's your least? So, so when I was in Illinois and I was deputy governor, my boss Rod Blagojevich uh, was a fin- Elvis fanatic, right? Like loved Elvis more than anything in the world, and kind of because he was a you know governors are kind of celebrities, and Rod was very charismatic and good looking. On top of that, somehow we got introduced to Lisa Marie, so we go to a Bears Packers game with Lisa Marie her boyfriend's guy named Marco Garibaldi and a few other people in her entourage. And it's perfectly fine and pleasant. Then like a few days later, this is exactly when Gray Davis got recalled in California and Schwarzenegger and other people were running for that open seat of which Schwarzenegger won. But it was seen as, there was a lot of candidates when it first happened. It was seen as very competitive. And we get this call saying, Marco wants to run for governor, right? <laughs> so, like, okay. and Marco's from Italy, by the way. He's not even, yeah, I don't even I guess maybe he's an American citizen. I don't know. Um, but Marco wants to be governor. But because Rod has this like obsession with Elvis and was so starstruck by Lisa Marie, we had to like get the whole political team on a call with Marco to sort of 
vet whether or not it's feasible and we have to kind of play along like, oh, yeah, Marco, you'd be so great at the job until <laughs> finally it comes up that he's never voted or even registered to vote. And we're like, OK, that's probably a disqualifier. So then it pivots to he wants a job with the state of Illinois. Right. So now Rod again says, you know, deal with Marco. So I'm talking to Marco on the phone. I, I, mean, I was in someone's backyard because I was just walk pacing around talking to Marco. Oh, I forget where I was, though. And I'm saying, so are you going to you're going to move to Chicago? And he's like, no. I said, oh, do you want to live in another part of Illinois? You know, we've jobs, facilities all over the state. He said, no, I'm going to live in Los Angeles. I said, how's that going to work? He said, I'll come in one day a week. And I said, well, we don't have one day a week jobs. We have five day a week jobs. And he said to me, I will do the work of five men. <laughs> Marco did not get hired. <laughs> That's a good one. Okay, I have two more things, then we're going to turn it over to the Elizabeth Wilkins interview. Um, you sent me a story uh, uh, by David Brooks, uh, New York Times opinion columnist, but this oh, story yeah. was in the Atlantic. Um, and the title of the story kind of says it all, which is Despite Everything You Think You Know, America is on the Right Track. Now, um, just to add one slight bit of detail to that story, I'm going to read you the kind of crux of the of the of the story, and then and then I want you to respond to it um, in the way that we've been discussing. The Economist, Tyler Cowen, suggests a thought experiment to illustrate this point. Take out a piece of paper. In one column, list all the major problems this country faces: inequality, political polarization, social distrust, climate change, and so on. In another column, write the seven words: America has more talent than ever before. Cowan's point is that the column B is more important than column A. Societies don't decline when they're in the midst of disruption and mess. They decline when they lose energy. And creative energy is one thing America has in abundance. Yeah. So, so look, a couple of things. One is we're fans of Tyler here. Uh, he's been on Firewall. We, we like Marshall Revolution. He's someone who definitely influences our thinking. And I feel like his name comes up a decent amount on this podcast. So with that said, look, T Tyler's underlying point, I agree with, right? Which to me, the U.S. is all, always sort of like the New York Yankees of countries, which is if everyone wants to play for you and you always have the money to get the best players and the best free agents, you're always going to win, right? You might not win the World Series every year, but you're going to be really successful, right? And to me, that's how the U.S. has always been. Um, and so if the U.S. is continuing to attract and produce the best and the brightest. And I think Tyler's point of talent outweighs everything else um, is probably right. And also, you know, we've talked about this sort of Steven Pinker notion uh, a lot on this podcast of how, while the world feels worse than ever, I think in large part because of TV and social media, from a statistical standpoint, the world is in the best shape it's ever been by a lot in terms of poverty and infant mortality and life expectancy and literacy and all of these things um, that have improved exponentially as sort of the capitalist democratic era has kind of generally flourished in the world since World War II. Um, with all that said, I, I think where that the article made me nervous is it just accepted this premise that America sort of has all this talent and generates all this great innovation and ideas. And it's not an endless well. And it seems to me that a lot of the policies that we have taken will send us in the other direction. And if not countered, will eventually mean that we don't have the kind of talent to outweigh. Um, so number one is immigration, right? Uh, I have a theory that's probably pretty insulting and unpopular, but it would be with every successive generation of this country, people get dumber and lazier, right? <laughs> um, it's not across the board, but I think it's an overall. Like the people who come to this country, again, I'm a first generation American, I am biased, 
but I also lived in an immigrant, you know, family. The the people who come to this country tend to be 99.99 times out of 100 hardworking people who obey the law. They want to be here and they, you know, will do jobs no one else will do. They value education. They value family. They, they are entrepreneurial. You know, they take opportunities. And that eventually leads to, you know, look, the story of our bookstore, right? P&T Knitwear, which was my grandfather and father's business, right? You know, was a small, very small, not particularly, you know, financially successful thing. But it laid enough groundwork that eventually I was able to do these things that I've been doing, right? And so I think that for as long as you have really open immigration, especially for high-skilled immigrants, yes, Tyler's right. But Trump cut that so significantly, and the fear over the border crisis is so severe that I, I think that both parties now are reluctant to really embrace immigration. And I think if you cut off your talent flow, um, that that dries up, that's cutting off your oxygen, right? So that's number one. Actually, it's, I mean, and, and, you know, we were going back and forth with some numbers on that. And it's, it's pretty incredible to see the, the drop in, in, um, in the flow of immigration into this country. I mean, it, 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 it it's been a pretty steady drop for, from the nineties onward. Um, and it, it's, it's not something that I think people are, um, you know, sort of enough focused on. I mean, it just feels like it's just sort of, you know, sort of. Yeah, you got some, some great stats, and I don't know if you have them right in front of you. I'm trying to find them on my phone and not find. Wait, here it is. Yeah. Number of foreign born in the US uh, grew 50% in the 1990s, 30% or a little under in the 2000s, and 12% in the 2010s, right? So that is just clear statistical evidence that we are bringing in fewer talented people. And as a result, our ability to sort of have this great innovation and entrepreneurship, you know, dries up along with it. And so you, you mentioned a couple of different features. There's one other one you were talking about, which is the the sort of leveling off in 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 research and development spending, uh, you know, on a national level. Um, and the, the the big the big news there is not that that the United States is spending a lot less. It's that relative to China, it's it's uh, China has been catching up pretty pretty significantly over the last ten years, in particular, but but even longer fr- time frame than that. In 2010, China had about half the U.S. R and D spending, even though it's about five times the population. Now it's up to 80 percent, and it seems like it's it's ready to eclipse us in the not too distant future. And so again. If you are not investing resources in new ideas, new technologies, new ways to do things, and you're not bringing in the most talented, hardworking people who can take advantage of those opportunities and do something with it, then you're not going to have the kind of growth and innovation that Tyler Cowen is talking about, which means that if, if the equation is things are sort of terrible for these 15 reasons, but the talent still outweighs all of it, as the talent wanes because of our bad policies – then the negative side goes. And the third piece of the, the puzzle or the stool or whatever cliche you want to use would be schools, right? Um, American public schools are pretty bad. Um, generally speaking, graduation rates are lower or even more than that. It's, it's college readiness, right? Because you can manipulate graduation rates however you want by just lowering the standards, which is what the state of New York and others have done. Um, but when you get to a point where the kids get to college and they can't pass the basic aptitude test or they can't handle the most basic coursework, then you know that the high school clearly failed in its mission. And so if you're not produced, if the only people who are really emerging from the educational system with a really, really good education are high-income people already, families, um, again, 
if, if you're not giving that opportunity of education to the vast majority of your population that's half that, you know, that is acceptable, then, you know, between that immigration and R&D, I just don't think that we're going to continue this trend for much longer. All right. Final question before we do the interview with Elizabeth Wilkins. Um, George Santos, we're not going to talk a lot about him, but I have one question about him. Yeah. So just to remind listeners, he's the... Uh, uh, the congressman who was elected uh, uh, from Long Island, Queens, um, with a with a resume that's just full of every hole you can imagine. Um, how do you th- how would you characterize the state of official lying at this point? Um, if it's so easy to be found out these days with the internet and and with all the ways that people can very quickly check up on someone or or find out um, sort of flaws or holes in their story, are people lying less? Are people lying better or just lying about different things that are harder to track? It's an excellent question because the thing here isn't that, you know, he pulled off some brilliant scam. He just out and out lied about everything, his job history, his ethnicity, his religion, his sexuality, his address, like everything. And I've, again, we've said this back and forth, I've never seen a more politically incompetent operation than the Zimmerman campaign, which was his op- opponent, that they didn't figure any of this out, Right. And, you know, their complaint was, oh, excuse me, we didn't have the money for it. Yes, you did, because if you had just spent the first 50 grand on covering this, you know, there wouldn't have been an election after that. <laughs> so, um, so you know, one is, it, I don't know that Santos is a good proxy to even try to answer that question, because he's so at the extreme. It's sort of like talking about politics and then using Trump as the baseline, right? You, you kind of can't do that. So overall, look, people are ambitious, People want success and people are willing to cut a lot of corners to get there, including lying. Um, And then the question is, are you less likely to do it? Because in theory, it should be easier to catch you. I'm guessing it's sort of the same as always. I think human nature is human nature and human nature doesn't doesn't evolve and adapt uh, as quickly as technology does. And so I think it's probably the same thing. And also keep in mind, if, if you take the basic premise of this podcast, which is Every policy output is shaped by political input, and 99% of politicians are desperately insecure, self-loathing people that can't live without the validation of holding office. That means that everyone running for office, this is it for them, right? Their entire uh, self-image, their entire sort of emotional well-being rests upon winning and keeping this seat. And if they have to say, well, I worked, you know, did this instead of that, um, they'll do so. Now, it seems crazy just to make up schools and jobs and things like that that you didn't have before. But look, you know, John Kerry in part lost the 2004 presidential election because of the Swift boat, right? He, you know, clearly was a war hero. I don't think I dis- really should dispute that. But he exaggerated his heroics and his actions, exaggerated sort of, the, you know, his opposition later to the war. Um, and the Bush campaign or, or the, the PACs affiliated with them were able to completely use that against him. And and Bush, who was a draft dodger, somehow looked less bad than Kerry, who was a war hero, right? And this is just the basic point of, you know, the cover-up is always worse than the crime. The truth is, like, the voters aren't paying that close attention to every nuance of everything you're saying. If you're a politician, you want to think they are because you're so narcissistic that you're, you know, obsessed with the idea that everyone's thinking about you at all times. But in <laughs> reality, they're not. And so, you, know, you make these exaggerations that you think is going to help you win the election. And instead, um, you have an entire press corps who lives for this shit, right? The thing they like more than anything in the world is to you know, expose hypocrisy. And so the risk you're taking, I would just say for candidates, if any of them listening, significantly outweighs the electoral benefit 
of claiming that you had, you know, this kind of job instead of that, or you performed 12% better or whatever it was. Nobody gives a shit. Well, it is incredible that George Santos profited from the extreme laziness of the, of the New York press corps too. I mean, that, yeah. that, I mean, they basically just allowed a complete scam artist to be elected uh, to the U S Congress. And that's, that's shameful for almost well, everybody in the whole ecosystem. Yeah. And I would say, especially maybe Newsday in this case, right? So New York Post was in the bag for a Republican. The Daily News, just their their budget is so crippled that they just don't have the ability to do this kind of work by and large. Um, the Times did it after the election. But look, the Times is not a New York newspaper. The Times is a global newspaper that happens to have the worst New York on the headline, but otherwise is no more of a New York paper than it is a Miami paper or a Tulsa paper or anything else. So Newsday, which is the Long Island newspaper, it seems to me the burden really should have fallen on them to do the research to figure this out. And I kind of can't believe how they failed to do it. All right. Stay tuned for Elizabeth Wilkins and Bradley. I'll see you next week. Okay. Thanks. All right. Welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Elizabeth Wilkins. Elizabeth is the director of the Office of Policy Planning at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, which is one of those things that sounds like the sort of this black box you don't really understand, but uh, it's really fucking important. So, Elizabeth, thank you for joining us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let, let's just start by trying to help people better understand what the FTC really is and does, because I think it sort of sounds most people kind of interact with them or come across them when some company is trying to merge with another company and then this all-powerful FTC says yes or no, right? Um, and I think give us a little more sense of like, what the agency is, what it does, why it's important, all that. Sure. Uh, And I appreciate the question. So um, the FTC has kind of a dual mandate. Uh, We're here, I think, probably talking most about antitrust, but just zooming out a little bit. Um, We have a set of authorities around competition and antitrust, in particular, protecting the marketplace, consumers, and other market participants from unfair methods of competition. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we also have a consumer protection mandate, so uh, protecting consumers um, from unfair, deceptive acts and practices. Um, and consumers in that case can also mean workers. It might mean small businesses, depending on the situation. So like if you take a kind of bigger picture look, um, what the FTC really is about is looking at the marketplace and understanding the dynamics to see is uh, is is are the dynamics of fair competition working such that consumers and other market participants are getting the deal that they should get? And then um, on the other end, uh, you know, when competition is working or where there's limited competition and that's the way it's going to be, um, are there regulations um, or enforcement that we need to think about to make sure that consumers are protected uh, kind of on the back end? Got that's it. kind of the 30,000. That, that makes level. total. So given that we live in this sort of super hyper-partisan world. Um, Would you say that kind of the FTC's kind of priorities and mandates shift depending on who the Congress and president is? Or do you think it's it's actually pretty steady regardless of of who's running the White House and and Capitol Hill? Sure. Well, um, a couple of things. First, we're actually, this is wonky, but we're like a multi-member commission, right? So we're not just headed by one person. We've got a chair and that um, and uh, and four commissioners. So that five-person commission is by statute required to be bipartisan. We've got uh, right now uh, uh, three democratically appointed members and right now one Republican appointee, and we're waiting for the second to to be um, 
nominated and confirmed. So we have kind of a bipartisan nature built in. Mm-hmm. The other thing is we're independent. We're an independent agency. We're not subject to the as direct a control of from the White House as, say, the Department of Agriculture or the Department of Labor or Department of Commerce, something like that. So the kind of whole idea was Congress wanted us to be an expert body, a little bit insulated uh, from the kind of political winds, et cetera. Um, and I got to say, like, one of the things that's really interesting, I think, about our agenda right now is there are some things that have some real broad support. Who wants to be scammed? Nobody. Who wants old people to be subject to fraud? Nobody. Um, also on our antitrust agenda. Yeah, like, I was about to say that. Yeah. Who, who can think about the constituents who are worried about small businesses and their ability to compete in the marketplace today? Does that sound to you like a Democratic or a Republican kind of agenda? Not, not just not, not just that, but it's like one of the, you know, I am somewhat hopeful that if anything could get done in this new Congress, which may be after what we saw over the last week or so is an unrealistic hope, but um, is, you know, I think on tech regulation, especially antitrust, yet you see, even if they talk about it slightly differently, the left and the right kind of have the same view on it. And by the way, they're, they're, they're correct in my view uh, about it too. Um, so yeah, it is something that both the op- consumer protection sort of everyone just, but you'd have to be crazy to be like, no, I want old people to get scammed. Um, but I think also on the bigger antitrust stuff that you guys are working on, I think there really is a lot of consensus and, you know, my world kind of tech and politics. Like when I see the polling, um, it is consistently really bad for big tech, um, better than like Congress, but, but, but not a lot. Um, so let, let's start with the non-compete, which is why I'd asked you to to come on. Uh, you guys just put out a, a, a proposed rule. It's a big deal. Um, and it really, is, as I understand it, makes it harder for companies to block an employee from going to work for a rival. Um, why is that important? Yeah. So first, you're exactly right. A non-compete is exactly what it sounds like. It's uh, between an employer and a worker, and it says, uh, you worker, you can't go work for a competitor and you can't go start a competing firm for some period of time after you're employed with me. Um, uh, you know, just put yourself in the shoes of that worker. Uh, I'm a, whatever it is, is my trade. I'm a security guard, I'm a journalist, I'm an engineer, this is my job, this is what I do, this is what I train to do, this is what I like to do, whatever it is. Um, uh, and I'm, you know, not able to do that at a different company for two years in the city that I live in if I decide to leave this job. Um, what does that mean? That means I can't go look for a job that's got better pay or that has the healthcare benefit that I need because I have a particular medical condition that has the hours that I need because of my family situation. Whatever wages and working conditions I'm looking for, I can't go get a better situation because I am bound uh, to the employer that I have. It also means it's probably harder for me to ask for a raise. Like I can't say, Hey, I got a job offer. You know, what are you going to offer me to, to keep me? I have other options. So on the individual level for a worker, um, that really limits your life opportunities. And then when you zoom out to the market where, um, that means that workers aren't matching with kind of the optimal jobs and the optimal employers, that means, uh, overall, wages can be depressed in the marketplace. It also means that honestly, um, employers might not be getting the best fit, the most productive workers, because you don't have that sorting and matching that could get to the place where 
I'm happy in my job. I'm more productive in my job, right. et cetera. It's funny. As an employer, your mind immediately goes to what you can lose if this new rule takes effect. But but the other way to look at it is like, well, what can I gain, right? Because there's all this talent that I might not be able to access otherwise that now all of a sudden I could. Um, and it does, look, there, you know, at least sort of the parlance is like people even now is like, well, non-competes are not really that enforceable anyway. So like, you know, we put them in stuff, but we're not really sure that they're ever going to be, you know, honored in court. Um, do you feel like the mentality among employers is shifting or do you think that there is really hardcore opposition to this? Um, that's a great question. Um, you know, I do think there are some places where like, you know, we live in a world now with like, standard form contracts, right? Consumers deal with this all the time. They kind of shrink wrap, like it's a million pages, it's tiny types. It, it looks like it's copy pasted. You know, we do live in a world where there's a bunch of contracts on the employment side now that may do that, that same thing. And we do see instances where, you know, as soon as an employer is challenged, do you really, do you really need this non-compete? They say, oh, nope, never mind. I, I definitely, I don't, I'll, we'll drop them. Um, but we see, you know, really surprising behavior on the other side as well. So last week, in addition to the NPRM, we announced um, three uh, consent agreements uh, with uh, companies that have been using non-competes. One of them was a security guard company. Um, they were employing minimum wage security guards. They had non-competes that said that you couldn't work for another security company within 100 miles of the company. Um, or you would be subject to $100,000 in damages. This is minimum wage workers. Yeah. And this company enforced those non-competes. They took minimum wage security guards to court. They also threatened to take the other companies that had hired their uh, previous employees to court. So, you know, yes, there are, sure, there are probably some where it's just in there. They hadn't really thought about it. You know, they're never going to enforce it. But A, does an employee know whether that's going to be enforced upon them or not? They don't. And that, and there's a chilling effect if those things are in there. And B, some employers really, really do. Yeah, and you, you, you lose even if you win, right? So, like, yes, the minimum wage security guard might win in court, but the fact that this person has to have the expense and time is basically completely unrealistic for someone like that. So, as a result, they've kind of lost before the process even starts. Is there a distinction between, say, the minimum wage security guard and the super high level engineer that has access to all of this IP and proprietary data, you know, is, is, how do you guys think about that? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, there are some dissimilarities and there are some differences, right? Um, from the worker's perspective and the concern about kind of limiting their opportunities, the coercion, et cetera, I'd say that engineer, you know, has the same kind of curtailment of liberty that you would be worried mm -hmm. about with somebody yep. else. Um, in terms of, you know, why an employer might want those, absolutely, we hear, you know, I, I invested in training for this person, and I don't want to have to lose them. And so um, can you like this non-compete helps me keep them and helps me protect that that investment. We also hear, I've got confidential information or trade secrets, a couple of things, employers have other options. Um, you know, there are non-disclosure agreements, there's trade secret law, we see thousands of trade secret cases be brought every year. Um, uh, there are non-solicitation agreements. So there's a, a, a plethora of other kind of tools that employers can use that are much less blunt and uh, much less detrimental to a worker's liberty than a non-compete to kind of 
protect those interests. The other difference I would say is, you know, um, in our proposal, we talk about effects in the labor market. We've been talking a little bit about effects on wages. There are also, you know, effects in the product market. If, if I'm an engineer, I might be kind of more likely to be the kind of person who would go to a startup or might start my own business and might actually help bring new entrants into the market. Or I might be the kind of worker who, when I go to a new firm, existing firm, I bring not the, you know, not the trade secrets, not the confidential information, but the new ideas and the generative ideas that help spur in innovation. So um, the very workers that, you know, employer might say, well, I have real justifications for wanting to have this non-compete might also be exactly the same kind of workers um, who can spur competition, business dynamism and innovation in the product and service market if we are allowed, if they are allowed to kind of move more freely. So the, the Chamber of Commerce is obviously up in arms ab about all of this. What's the if, – if you were to say, okay, this is the argument that they will make against us that will have the most resonance or sort of the strongest, what is it and then what's the counter? Sure. I mean, you can see it in our proposal, you know, and, and you, just, um, you just pointed out, hey, what about these higher wage workers, these specialized workers or these CEOs, you know? A, really, are you going to tell me that those guys are are put upon when we put these um, these contracts in their in their these agree in their agreements? You know, they they might have lawyers. They can bargain over them, and we recognize that there are probably some um, high level folks for whom, you know, they actually get the benefit of the bargain. Um, and and also, I think they would say, as we just talked about, these are the folks that we need the most. You can't let us, you can't tell me that our high-level executives that are specialized workers, um, that we can't hold on to them. Uh, or they might say, um, yeah, we have these other tools, but they're not as good. Um, it's harder to enforce an NDA than it is to just say you can't go work for that competitor and take that information that's in your head. Um, you know, and, and what we try to say is a couple of things. Um, one, we've asked for comments on the senior executives question. We recognize that they actually might be getting the benefit of the bargain. But again, we're worried that actually that's where the action is in terms of spurring comp beneficial competition in the, yeah. in the product market. Right. And then right. second, even if these other tools, and I'm not conceding it, but even if these other tools are not as protective as the non-compete, then then we do have to ask ourselves, well, where does the benefit outweigh the harm or the other way around, right? We're talking about the marginal benefit of the non-compete over these other tools versus, um, again, a pretty significant limitation on the liberty of workers to work where they choose in the conditions that they choose, which I think we really have to be serious about. And what if, what if a worker said, I want to sell my non-compete right? So I am you know, willing to live by these rules, but I want to be compensated for it. Is there a way for them to do that? Or is it an all or nothing scenario? So what I'd say there is that's a nice theory, if you can get it, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, uh, and maybe at the top again with CEOs, yes, they have lawyers, they're bargaining and maybe they get a bonus or something like that. But the vast majority of workers, I mean, think about the last time you started the job, right? You accept the job you give notice at your old job, you show up on the first day of your new job, you get a stack of new hire paperwork. Uh, the 
evidence shows that an awful lot of workers don't even know they have a non-compete until that day that they are signing the stack of paperwork, if they see it at all. Yeah. The moment they realize they have one is when they try and leave and they feel like they can, and they, they realize that they can't. So again, a great idea in contract theory that you can get the benefit of your bargain. The truth here is for the vast majority of workers, there's no bargaining. Yeah. Um, makes, makes sense. Would, would definitely contradict everything I learned in law school at Chicago, but, but, but in the real <laughs> world makes a lot of sense. So, so before we shift over to sort of the, some of the broader questions, what's the process from here on out? Like, how do you take this idea that you, that you came up with and make it the law of the land? Um, I appreciate that question. So again, this is a proposal. It's called a notice of proposed rulemaking. So what we have done is we've said, this is the rule that we're thinking about promulgating. Here's all of the reasons that we think that. Here's all of our reasoning. And we've invited people to comment. We have a 60-day comment period. Uh, it closes, I think, sometime middle of March. Clock is on. If you go to ftc.gov slash non-competes, you can find the full proposal. And you can also find a link to where you can upload your comments. Um, we really are interested in, uh, in everybody's feedback, uh, feedback on every, every aspect of this, the, evident, the evidentiary base that we have, the specific language that we use, how this will be impacting different industries, different workers, the different dynamics that we may or may not have been thinking of. Um, so I really encourage folks, if you have knowledge and experience here, um, you don't have to be an academic to comment. You can be uh, uh, an individual with personal experience, a business owner with personal experience. Please go to ftc.gov slash non-competes and, um, and, and comment. And then once that 60-day period closes, uh, it, we will um, take our obligation seriously to consider all of those comments as we develop a potential, as we decide whether to, and then, and then develop um, a final rule. And then the rule, ultimately, you need, what, three votes from the commissioners to, to adopt it? We need a majority of whatever the commission is. Right now, it's a four-person majority. Yeah. So, it's, yes, three is, is the number. But, yes, we need a majority of the commission to vote it out. Got it. So, like, realistically speaking, this to, if this were to make it all the way through the process, it takes effect when? Uh, not for a while. I don't want to bind us. But, you know, don't be looking for – you know, March 30th, like comment period closes and it's out, you know, yes. it'll take us some number of months, et cetera, et cetera, to, to, to go through our process. Yeah. So uh, this next question may be a little weird. It's kind of taking a, a step back, but it's kind of your view or the FTC's view or both of the purpose of a corporation, right? So, so as, as I sort of see it, there's sort of two different philosophies. The, the commonly accepted one was at Milton Friedman, University of Chicago, view, which is pretty simple, the goal of a corporation is to maximize profit for shareholders, right? It's it's a certainly, an, it's a definition that we're going to understand even if you don't agree with it, right? Then there's a more contemporary view like the Business Roundtable put out that says, no, the purpose of a corporation is both to maximize profit for shareholders and try to sort of further societal good or do no harm. Um, and that's a much, that, that's a definitely a different view because if you, if you accept one, it almost argues one path for the FTC, including on issues like non-compete, right? And if you accept the other, it's totally it it it, it frees it up quite a bit. H- how do you think about this? If that question even made sense, it might not have. It totally did. It totally did. So, you know, um, I guess it would take a little bit of a different tact. You started with what's the purpose of a corporation? What we look at is not necessarily the purpose of a corporation, but um, what are the conditions in the marketplace, right? Congress told us to look at whether a merger lessens competition. Um, 
uh, Congress to tol told us to look at whether conduct um, engaged in by a firm or a set of firms is tending towards uh, monopolization of a market. And Congress told us to prevent unfair methods of competition. So, you know, uh, it's not really for us to say, hey, um, this corporation might be engaging in monopolistic behavior, abusing its monopoly or becoming a monopoly, but it's doing some other good things over here, or it's doing a good or bad job at, you know, serving its shareholders. It's really, are you, are you tending, are you tending towards monopoly? Are you taking over the market? There was a judgment call that what we, what was going to be beneficial for consumers uh, and other market participants was healthy competition. And so that's what we're supposed to do is maintain a healthy competitive market. Um, yeah. And I, you, you know, our chair, Chair Khan, had an, an op-ed recently that sort of said, you know, uh, it may be that there are some other policy goals that we have, that we as a society have. So for example, ESG goals or whatever mm -hmm. they are, those might be good things. Um, unless they bear on our analysis of whether a particular merger is lessening competition or you're engaging in legal behavior, it's not really a part of our legal analysis. Right, right. That makes sense. Um, yeah, that, that makes total sense. The, um, you know, one argument that I think you guys, I like to be talked about kind of competition because I think oftentimes the easy way to sort of analyze stuff, say, you know, government hates business, business has to protect itself, and it's simple as that. Whereas, like, and you and I have talked about this before, um, like as an early stage tech investor, there's no competition in a lot of these markets, and that really hamstrings my ability to deploy capital, and it hamstrings the ability for new companies with better ideas to to come about. Right? Like I effectively, if anyone said to me, uh, my competition, I'm going to take down Meta. Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google. It's like, well, that's for, you know, it's absurd, right? I, I can't, I can't possibly commit my LPs money to something like that, by the way, but I would like to, right? Because all of those companies are probably not perfect in every way. And there are opportunities to disrupt them. Um, and yet, you know, do, do you think that the kind of the community, the tech community sort of done a bad job of differentiating those who just want to maintain these monopolistic practices with those who actually would like to see antitrust because it would help engender more competition? Yeah, you know, I, that's a great question. I, you know, from my perspective, I think there is an excellent business case for greater antitrust enforcement. And you've started to make some of that, whether, it, whether it's tech or elsewhere. The, the, ideally, the work we do supports greater business dynamism, right? It creates air and light for new entrants, for entrepreneurship, for innovation. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, from my perspective, uh, folks who are looking for investment opportunities absolutely should, should be excited about stuff like this. I mean, you know, I'll just to take the non-compete as an example, I saw on Twitter that the CEO of the Chamber of Progress was out there super excited about our proposal. And like, why is that in this particular instance? This is not mergers and acquisitions, but you know, it was like, yeah, like our our smaller folks can't get workers that they need. And this is a labor market intervention, but you can see it from the other perspective as well. And for you yeah. as an investor, yeah, I can't, these, I can't uh, find a new entrant, see that new entrant grow and have a real opportunity to compete in the marketplace because this marketplace is being so squeezed by a 
um, a monopoly, a duopoly, whatever it is. And so I do think there ought to be uh, real kind of alignment in a lot of what we are trying to do to create, like I said, more business dynamism in a lot of markets. Right. It, it, it seemed like a little bit that the companies that I just named, they grew so big, so fast that there was almost just like there wasn't even time to say like, oh, how do we feel about this? Or do we want to try to prevent it? You know, next thing you know, is Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and all of that. So um, given as, as we head into sort of new forms of technology, like Web3 and the metaverse and everything else, what are the lessons that we've learned? I think mostly by our inaction um, that we need to be more vigilant about. That's a great question. So I'm going to be a little bit careful. I'm not going to talk about specific companies right, 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 and I'm right. not going to yeah, talk about specific cases, but I will say you've hit on something that's a real priority for us, which is, um, you know, how can we as a government actor be ahead of instead of behind the times, right? How do we make sure, and again, we're set up as an expert agency. How do we use our expert, our, our tools and our expertise to understand emerging markets and to understand the new and emerging dynamics um, that might lead to, again, you know, monopolization. One of, our, one of our charges is not just to sit around and look and say, oh, there is already a monopoly. What do we do here? One of our charges is to um, very explicitly stop monopolization in its incipiency right at the beginning, in its infancy, yep. Yep. Before, um, before a company can start squeezing out competitors, squeezing out entrepreneurship and innovation. So absolutely, it is a priority for us specifically also in the tech realm, as we sort of think about new dynamic emerging markets, to, um, to be vigilant uh, about emerging practices and, uh, and to take that, that charge about incipiency seriously. And one place you can see that recently, um, back in the fall, we released a policy statement about what we call our Section 5 authority. It is this um, authority to go after unfair methods of competition. Um, we did sort of a thorough look at the congressional record, at um, the history of um, Supreme Court cases, and one of the things that came out of that and that comes out very strongly in that policy statement is that we need to be using that authority to go after incipient conduct in markets, again, before anybody can monopolize a new, a new market. That makes sense. Um, on antitrust specifically, you know, there does seem to be some consensus in Washington and I th in legislation passed in Congress in December, I think it was a continuing resolution. You guys received more funding and kind of more latitude. Um, what did that do for you? And if you were to say to, if, if I guess McCarthy who's still the speaker today, uh, and she were to come to you and say, okay, listen, what do we, what do you need to fully do your job in the most effective way possible? What does that look like? Uh, we did receive a bump, and I have to say, if any of them are listening, thank you, thank you, thank you to our appropriators. Um, you know, the, the story of the FTC is like a David and Goliath story, right? We are a relatively small government agency charged with overseeing wide swaths of the American economy, incredibly large um, corporate entities, um, with an incredibly important mission to protect consumers. And in case um, we hadn't noticed, literally all Americans are consumers, right? We're all in these marketplaces. Yep. The work that the FTC sh does should affect basically all of us, right? Um, we have also been chronically underfunded since the levels that we were at in the 1970s, et cetera. So this is a hugely important step forward to turn us up to kind of where we've been in historical levels. Um, 
I am not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. I am yep. going to say thank you very much. But if you, yeah, but if you like, you know, I'll just say we go up against the best resourced companies in the country and also the best resourced law firms. So we have to be able to like have the tools and resources and manpower to, to adequately represent the American people. And then, so, so once you guys f- pursue a prosecution on antitrust grounds, is DOJ then part of the the effort to actually do the prosecution, or is everything in house at the FTC? We are able to bring our own cases. It's, I'm not going to get into super detailed weeds. There right. are some places where DOJ helps right, us, right, blah blah. Yeah. But in general, yeah, it's the FTC going to court um, or going to our administrative process. So um, we file a complaint, we litigate the complaint. Um, you know, we were in trial. Um, this past December uh, on the antitrust side. So, uh, yes. Um, so one thing I've always wondered about, which sort of shows you how nerdy I am, but is the relationship between the FTC and the state attorneys general, right? Because it, from my perspective, and I spent a bunch of time working in state government, you know, you see attorney generals jump out on kind of an antitrust type issue, but generally it's they're politicians, right? And they're, doing it for political, certainly in part for political reasons, because, you know, it's in certain ways suing Google, the state of Missouri, like when Josh Hawley was the AG, I remember being, remember that struck me so much when he sued Google, because I was like, wow, the worm has really turned, because clearly he's making this decision solely based on politics in his next election. You can't say that, but I can. Um, And therefore, the public sentiment has really changed, right? Because you wouldn't, people five years earlier loved Google, right? So how does it work with the state AGs? Are they in the way? Are they helpful? What's the deal? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I have to personally say, you're talking to somebody who worked for the DC Attorney General's office for five years. So there is a very special place for the community of state attorneys general in my heart. You're right. Many of them are elected. You could say that also means they're politically accountable, which is a good thing. And I'll just take a moment to say, you know, DC Attorney General just became an elected position in, uh, in uh, this is Elizabeth Wilkins in her personal capacity, yeah. um, just became a, a elected position on, um, in the, you know, DC's fight for greater um, democratic accountability. Um, uh, uh, they are often our partners, honestly. Um, you know, like I just, I just said, right, we are going up against some of the most well-resourced um, corporations and, and law firms. Um, uh, the FTC um, luckily has resources that the state AGs, particularly when they band together and do a multi-state, have, can, can put together significant resources. So we are often partnering with them. Um, another thing that's actually really interesting is, so we have our FTC Act. We've been talking about our unfair methods of competition and unfair and deceptive acts and practices, if you really want to nerd out. Um, authority, many states have what we call, quote unquote, little FTC Acts which have state authority to go after unfair and deceptive acts and practices yeah. and unfair methods of competition. And often they mirror our um, interpretation of our law. Um, that's one of the reasons we think it's so important that we're, we are interpreting our unfair methods of competition authority here in this notice of proposed rulemaking and elsewhere. Um, so, you know, it's a force multiplier, really. Um, you know, we can't be everywhere. They can't be everywhere. And, uh, and it is, I think, a really fruitful kind of community of enforcers that can kind of increase our increase our capacity. What happens? Um, and maybe it's just because I'm like working with limited information, but it seems like you know some state AG files suit against you know Apple or whatever it is. Um, it, it, do they are they talking to you guys about that beforehand? Like, is there ever a world where they're acting 
because either they think it's the right thing to do or, or it's, it's in their political interest and they're getting out ahead of you or changing the strategy or anything like that? I mean, certainly, right, we're different entities. We have different kind of institutional interests and incentives. And sometimes the states will take on something that we think we can't or shouldn't. Um, again, we're a five-member commission, so there might be a lot of different reasons why we think this is a good use of our resources or it isn't. Yeah. You know, one thing that we might think is the states actually have it covered. Like, that's an, a, an interesting area. Just because we're not on board doesn't mean it's because we think it's not a good idea. It could be they got this, you know, we all have limited resources, we should go do something else. Um, but, you know, often there are conversations where, you know, we started this lawsuit, do you guys want to jump on board? You have different remedies, you have, you know, different statutes, do you want to jump on board, do you not want to jump on board, and, and vice versa. Cool. All right, last question has nothing to do with the FTC or any trust or all of that, which is, you know, a, a listener is planning a trip to D.C. You sound like you know the city really well. What are a couple of things that you when your friends say, hey, what should I do? Or when you take them around that are not the traditional things, whether it's restaurants, you know, things to see, a, a museum that's really cool, but really small. Think, what do you like? Absolutely. Uh, I am a D.C. native, so this is uh, the best question. So um, one thing I'd make a plug for is there is a little known um, uh, offshoot of the Smithsonian's in Southeast, the Anacostia Community Museum, kind of amazing, um, set in a lower income uh, minority part of the city. Uh, and it's an amazing museum and it is right next to Frederick Douglass's house. Didn't know it was over there. Uh, awesome tour. So I always recommend that. And there's, there used to be a shuttle to go over there. So everybody should do that. Two, um, uh, you know, DC has phenomenal Ethiopian food. So yeah. like make sure that you get some Ethiopian if you go up to Adams Morgan, Mount yeah. Pleasant, Columbia Heights. Um, that is always my particular plug for like, you know, people, people, sometimes poo-poo the DC restaurant scene, but I really do think the art Ethiopian food is great. So those are my two primary recommendations. Okay, pretty cool. All right, uh, if people want to learn more, just remind us again about either the, the non-compete clause that you're proposing specifically or just the work that you guys are doing generally, what's the best way to find out? FTC.gov generally, but FTC.gov slash non-competes. You can get the whole proposal. You can find out how to comment. Cool, Elizabeth Wilkins, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. 